Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. We do what we do, ese. Entiendes, Mendes? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Steven Pinker has gone into the NFT business and he will be selling tokens of his ideas. <laughs> now, look, I know that we may go on to say that this is the douchiest reductio ad absurdum of neoliberal technocrat ideas we've ever heard, but... Over under on when you and I set up an NFT for <laughs> VBW like dick jokes. Just out of prince sheer principle now, I can I can never do it. Mm. Like I, I just feel, so okay, so I'm looking at the link where this announcement was made. And my first thought was like, did Steve Pinker get like hacked and like somebody is, doing, <laughs> yeah. is like just putting out this press release. And it says though, other thought leaders who have confirmed they will be releasing digital collectibles of their most popular ideas and causes include racial justice icon, Dr. Cornell West, animal rights activist, Peter Singer and Shashi Tarur, India's leading voice on colonialism and human rights. Now, Peter Singer, I'm like, yep. fine, fuck it. If he's just like, you know... He's run the numbers. Give... He's, exactly. <laughs> you know... I give him a full pass on this, as long yeah. as he privately thinks it's stupid. Yeah. Um, Cornell West, ones... who I like, but like he will do... Like, it doesn't fully surprise me. That, yeah, that he right. This is, like, this is like getting an offer to roll on the Matrix, in the Matrix movies. Yeah. Um, but what is... This is just the problem with NFTs. It's like, what are you buying? So here's what you actually are buying something, but it's still like it doesn't make it better. So he's he's going to release digital collectibles of his famous idea. This was Steven Pinker's famous idea that free speech is fundamental. Like, first of all, just that, <laughs> like the, the idea that that's his uh, idea. But right. these collectibles will guarantee recurrent access to intimate group video calls with Pinker. Like, do they jerk off on camera, uh, <laughs> to intimate group video calls with Pinker to discuss this topic for the next several years. Uh, can you imagine paying? So the, there's two tiers that'll be available. The gold collectible, which is unique, grants the buyer the right to co-host the calls with Pinker and will be priced at $50,000. The standard shit. collectibles, which are limited to 30 items, <clears throat> grant the buyers the right to access those video calls and ask questions to Pinker at the end. That's what you get for uh, 0.2 Ethereum or... <laughs> 
uh, $300. You get to like scramble in a couple questions at the end if his co-host <laughs> is taking questions. This is, uh, our listeners know I'm a fan of capitalism. You know, I think it's brought us some some like real cool shit. This is not one of them. <laughs> this is this is like enough to make me a Marxist. You know, normally you would just be the the way that you could get a question answered is by like r- rushing up to that microphone they set up in the in the like <laughs> aisle of the auditorium and hoping that you get there soon. No, now you got to pay like thousands of dollars to hear like yeah, or like what is two point four <laughs> Ethereum? <laughs> yeah. I have some Ethereum, actually. No, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what, what's going on here. Is it just that throwing enough money? I guess. I guess what was uh, maybe in your question at the beginning was that if enough money was thrown at you, you would totally be doing NFTs. Like, I, I don't think I could do this, even for, like, uh, astronomically high amount of right. money. Like, I, I couldn't do this. And, you know, it's also funny that it's free speech. Like, quote, unquote, free speech. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you can trade these. As with any token. And so like... You're like, I have a pinker. Do you have a West? Like, I, like I'll trade you a pinker for a West. And then just the way it's described, as more thought leaders from different backgrounds and ideologies start producing collectibles of their ideas, a new asset class could be born. Ideas. <laughs> pinker is, in fact, part of a new wave of some of the world's most influential thinkers and activists and activists transforming their ideas into digital assets. Th- what does you're that even right. Mean? Like I can see like I'm not committed to capitalism like you are, but <laughs> holy shit. Like how are you supposed to, you know, go back to your Milton Friedman after this? Right. Like uh isn't releasing an ebook already transforming your idea into a digital asset? Like do you really need it to be encrypted? <laughs> I it's I guess it's just another way of here I'm going to th- throw like an exclusive salon for wealthy people and you can be a part of it you know look i i i uh respect steve pinker i as much as he's given me reasons to to dislike him but this this is uh i think honestly embarrassing like i'm yeah it's it's and kind of shameful like i i really think I, I mean, look, we have Patreon. It's not like we're anti-money and no. it's not like we're, we don't like give people access to some of our content behind some sort of paywall. But this just feels like if, if you just literally turned it into like a $50,000 and you, it, it's like a charity auction. Like when you get to like date, a, you know, go on a date with Steve Pinker, who can bid the highest. Right. Uh, it's like the, like Arrested Development, you know. When they, <laughs> <laughs> the, Five. Thousand dollars. <laughs> oh, Buster. Oh, Buster. <laughs> uh, for $25,000, you can get uh, Pizarro and me doing Liza Minnelli impressions. <laughs> you could trade, and you could trade 100 Pizarros for one pinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's actually, if we're going to try to be self reflective on this like is that true like are is that like because we do our ask us anything's you know that like what's the difference between that and this (laughs) the price (laughs) the price price and and then also that we don't talk about it like this (laughs) yeah we would never say something like the asset is backed by recurrent real world access to the figure leading and embodying the idea if an idea or leader grow in popularity one should expect people will want to be so it's like a it's like an investment Estimate, you know? Yeah. Okay. Here's what turns me off about it. One yeah. is that um, 
there is like the whole point of of blockchain is to introduce scarcity and no matter like how many people look i would love it if a million people paid you know five bucks per episode and they got all of our content this is introducing a sort of like a um only eight people get to access to my most like my coolest ideas and so it feels a little different like for that reason Two, as much as in principle, like we are both doing things for money, there is something about the amount of money that is, it just seems like really like I'm, I'm telling you that you can't have access to me unless you're pretty wealthy, like essentially like, and then third, which is less rational on my part, but it's just a bunch of crypto bullshit. Yeah. Like haven't, <laughs> hasn't there been enough exposure of NFTs like being uh, not worth it? Like they're not what it's, there's nothing there. Um, it's also just so banal and like uh, the the first guy to do it, uh, his idea was China is will winning the war against the U.S. Cornell West, again, like him, uh, his first idea to be transformed into a collectible will be racism in America must die for democracy to live. I mean, these are cliches. The fact that it's an idea is almost like a red herring. It's really just access yeah, what does it even mean that the ideas are an like, asset class? Yeah. Like, wasn't that the idea? Didn't you just print it? Like what? <laughs> Didn't you just give away what the idea was? <laughs> right. Right. Well, in the same way, like, well, I can look at that photo on like Google images. Why do I need to purchase the NFT right. of that? It's because, <laughs> no, no, no. But this has this is a the, token. Yeah. Um, in any case, we will sell our souls too but we will i think do it in a more aesthetically tasteful <laughs> right right we're artists <laughs> <laughs> we are we're totally artists um all right speaking of i think our like the this topic the opening segment topic and the main topic are all connected they are i was, I was thinking the same thing yeah. yeah. Um, so in the second segment, we're going to be talking about Marshall McLuhan, specifically a Playboy interview that he did. Can you believe that, like, that's like, remember when Play Playboy was just like, like had yeah. these like incredibly in-depth interviews with. Uh, Absolutely. Are they a thing anymore? I don't know. Is Playboy a thing anymore? I don't know. I, I mean, I like I, I remember that they took out nude pictures like they stopped being, you know, what was essentially Playboy. So. So Talk I don't know about a good example exists. of the media is the message. Like <laughs> the difference between Playboy and, you know, online porn is a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I think the content also matters. <laughs> it's a good Maybe, example yeah. of where the content Maybe. actually is important. Too. But we're talking about his interview, but also his chapter, the medium is the message. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in the, and then right now we're going to talk about, um, I, did you put this in the Slack or did I? You did. Uh, it is, uh, the title of it is a, a Wired article from March, just this month. I asked an algorithm to optimize my life. Here's what happened. <laughs> By Lucy Liu. Is that yes, right? It's just not that Lucy Liu. Or is it that Lucy <laughs> <laughs> So this is something when I first just heard the, the headline, I thought was, uh, it was you know, perfect clickbait for you. Like it's perfect click. This is why our society is completely unraveling in the worst and just most depressing possible way. Um, you know, it actually, when you read it, it's a little different than that. And I'm not exactly sure why. What did you think about it? 
Yeah, I read it expecting uh, expecting that it would cause a healthy argument between us where somebody was defending the use of like an algorithmic approach to your decision making. And it turns out, I think her conclusion, um, first of all, I think it's well done. Um, but I think her conclusion is m- way more in line with you what, what you would believe going into this, which, yeah. 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 So, so what's so? What did she do? Can, yeah. You so this is, it? Yeah. So Lucy Liu was a. Um, I guess she was doing her master's in computer science. So she's that kind of a nerd. She was working as a data scientist and working on algorithms. And she was just surrounded by people who, who, as she says in the article, were constantly talking about like the local maximum and and suboptimality and you know all these like things that you would create an algorithm to maximize um to to optimize on something or other and so she thought like look there is just a ton of there are a ton of things in my life that do seem suboptimal like there are decisions that i make that might actually be the wrong decisions to make given what i could have done and so she decided that she was going to create like modify an algorithm that optimizes to help her make decisions. She goes through like a pretty lengthy process where she dis- she comes up with a, a, a procedure so that whenever she was faced with a decision, she would feed it into this algorithm and uh, the algorithm would tell her whether to do one thing or another, but also it would randomly toss in uh, just a decision that she might not take otherwise. Like it, would, right. it had like a random function so that she might be, uh, she might take take in take decisions that she would never normally take and that way the algorithm and she can learn um, right so it was right. like uh she, it would spit out a number between one and a hundred if it was over five she would do the thing that historically had been good but if it yeah. was five or under then it would randomly select options an option at that, yeah. yeah yeah which I that was kind of cool like yeah, yeah <laughs> i did too <laughs> Um, because that solves a problem that you might get stuck in your in your ways. So if you sort of like let insert some some chaos into your life, you might discover things you never would have otherwise. So she went about like using this algorithm, this basically like reinforcement learning, and she would she had to decide what exactly it was. I guess that she was trying to optimize, and that right. that that became the the big issue where. You're deciding, for instance, in her example, whether to sleep in for 30 minutes and get the uh, satisfaction of that extra sleep or to get up when her alarm rang and get some stuff done. And so she realized, I think uh, what she realized, she didn't say it this way, (laughs) was that there is just a plurality of values that uh, she that no algorithm could take care of. Like these algorithms are built to optimize on something very simple. Like, especially if it's a quantifiable, it's a single metric, um, you know, you're optimizing for amount of time or amount of money, like a, an algorithm that picks stocks or something like that. When you get to the realm of like, was this a satisfying or a good decision? All of a sudden you're faced with thinking about the criteria. And this is what this whole exercise led her to, mm-hmm. which was like reflecting on what are the criteria that I'm trying, that I would try to optimize on. And yeah. it's, you know, now, now you're getting into the philosophy of well-being, really. Like what right. is Valerie what is, Tiberius, like, yeah, like are you a, whatever, 77 right. or 78. Yeah. Are, are you a desire satisfactionist? And like, what is a desire? Like this, that kind of what shit. Do you you know? What, what do you value? What do you value? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And and in that sense, it's a really useful exercise. I like. I I don't think you would want to. I think you definitely wouldn't want to do it every day. But it's a useful exercise to get you to think about these things because a lot of the time, habits being what they are, we don't. We just uh, yeah. go through the motions, the grooves that we've spent the last like however many years uh, defining in our brains. And so like, totally. Uh, so like, I think that's a really good part of it. The other thing that I think is a really good part of it is that it forces you to just take a step and think about like, I think I'm very high on this idea, actually. <laughs> when you have a choice, you now have to think about making the choice and you have to think about what's worked in the past and what right. hasn't. And just that little, like, now you, even if you're like maybe right. tempted to not do that, there's just some little bit of impetus, you know? Like, this totally. is like, it like, it often just makes you think about it for a second and take like a breath and before you just do what you normally do, you know, automatically, like, right. a, like a robot. Would you call that mindfulness? I like I'm exactly honestly, yeah, yeah. That's what exactly what I was thinking is a kind of mindfulness. Maybe it's a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, yeah, in right. Some sense. That's right. Because cognitive behavioral therapy, they teach you to to like pay attention to the antecedents, your behaviors, and the consequences, yeah. and like you're just paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you think that. Yeah. I thought this was a surprisingly humanistic article. Like, yeah. At the end. Like, so, you know, the language of optimization is not one that I like. I don't like, I feel like that's destroying like the world, is every, <laughs> everyone trying to optimize everything. But it's, and even that she kind of was like, what does it mean to optimize? Yeah. Uh, she says like, I'll just quote in general, I believe that having more of certain things, namely health, time, money, and energy is always preferable. But we can lose a lot when we optimize for these four goals. Beyond paying in one to obtain another, there are compelling arguments that fixating on optimization can make people less connected to reality and unduly obsessed with control. Right. And yeah. that's true. That it can also uh, induce a kind of paralysis in decision making because it's very hard to judge in close calls what will optimize. And so if you're committed to that, you will spend way too much time like deliberating about uh, a decision. <laughs> Not you know? if you have an app. Not if you <laughs> <laughs> right. And I guess it, it might be good for that. And, you know, like I do low tech analog versions of this. Like when when I have a little rule that if I feel 50 50 or anywhere close to 50 50 about whether to go out or whether to just stay home and I always go out like yeah. that's just my rule. So if I'm weighing it and it yeah. seems like, oh, I'd like to I'd like to go out. But then I would love to, it would be so much fun to just stay at home and watch a movie. Right. If it's 50 50, I'll go out. You know, like, so I do that. I do like roll. Uh, my wife and I have done rolling dice to make decisions that we don't know just to get a sense of what, like which one we're rooting for. You right. Know? Oh yeah. Like flipping a coin when you yeah. have like, a, right. In, when it's made it midair, you often know exactly what you, <laughs> what you actually want. <laughs> yeah. And if you do like three out of five, it gives even more time for you to figure out like who, what you're rooting for. You know? Right. Right. Uh, um, so like, yeah. Uh, I thought I would hate this, uh, but, but I like it. <laughs> it seems, I don't know why I get this, like, um, th like it's something William James would have tried. Yeah. You know? Right. And like just written, written essay about like his experience. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, William James might've had a little spectrum, -y side, <laughs> but they yeah. didn't talk about that. <laughs> That's then. right. That's right. We, he wasn't on Twitter, so we can't see how. <laughs> all right let's come back and talk about marshall McLuhan. 
This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know, getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process because we're always growing and changing and often changing in ways we can't understand. New habits creep up on us. New media, as we're about to talk about, shape our experience, our attitudes, our interpersonal relationships. And, you know, even if we're not going to set up an optimizing algorithm, it's important to reflect on how these changes are affecting our well-being. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do, until we can talk it through with someone. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Therapy can help you understand how your past and your present are shaping who you are today, whether you're dealing with trauma, troubled relationships, social anxiety, professional problems, or just the alienating, atomizing aspects of modern life and modern media. You can learn coping skills, how to set boundaries, and how to recognize the patterns and habits that can be self-destructive and dangerous for our mental health. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, if you think it might be helpful for you, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash VBW. Thanks, as always, to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we would like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support. In particular, thank you so much for all of the communication that you have with us, all the interaction. Thank you for building our little community to make us feel at home. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read everything, don't always answer everything, but we really appreciate it. Um, you can tweet to us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. You can join our Reddit community and discuss with like-minded fel—I was going to say fellows, and then I was like, no, that should be gender inclusive. But then I was like, no, it's fellows. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much fellows. <laughs> um, uh, no, I'm sure that's not entirely true, but. Um, yeah, join that lively discussion. You can follow us on Instagram. Um, you can. We appreciate ratings on Apple Podcasts and reviews, good reviews. Yeah, please. It just also helps uh, other people find the podcast. 
as hard as it is to believe, some people don't even know they about don't know. Them. Yeah. Every time I bump into somebody who doesn't know I have a podcast, I'm like offended. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't act offended. I think I'm pretty good about oh, being yeah, like, yeah. oh, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just all over your face. <laughs> um, and finally, you can listen to us or subscribe on Spotify. I'm sure that helps us. It helps people find us there as well. So thank you, everybody, for all uh, the ways in which you reach out to us and support us. And follow me on Letterboxd. I'm going to try to. That seems like a good social media uh, uh, form of, I don't know. If I'm going to waste time, I would rather waste time on Letterboxd. So I'm going to start posting little reviews and ratings. I I need to go on there more often. Yeah. Um, And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, there are a bunch of different ways you can do that, all of which can be found on our support page. Buy some swag, give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, or you can join our growing Patreon community. We have a couple of announcements. Um, The biggest one, maybe, uh, is that we are resuming the Ambulators series. The that ambulators. is the Ambulators. Uh, detailed uh, discussions of every episode of Deadwood um, that come every off week for us. Um, and we are just about to begin season two. You can find all of season one on the Patreon at the $2 and up per episode tier. For $1 and up, you get ad free episodes and you get all six volumes of Dave's Beats. $2, you get the Ambulators. You get. Um, Paul and David's new podcast, Psych, uh, limited, somewhat limited series of discussions on every chapter in Paul's new book, Psych. Yeah, you get early release. Early release, sorry. Yes, you get early release of those episodes. Um, And uh, just a whole catalog of of archives. Uh, We might get back into the David Lynch crew um, now that Inland Empire has just been released. If you want to join. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm from the Inland Empire, so I feel like I kind of have to. Yeah, you might Because I'm sure it's all about where I grew up. Definitely. It's just like, you know, like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, you know. (laughs) Licorice pizza or something like that. (laughs) Uh, And um, you at five dollars and up, you get our um, brothers Karamazov series, which we are very proud of. You get uh, all of Dave's intro psych lectures, a couple lectures that I've done on Plato's Symposium, and you get to vote on an episode topic uh, every six months or so. And then at the $10 and up per episode tier, the highest tier, you get to ask us questions or you're offered the opportunity to ask us questions every month, which we will then answer in video and audio form. And we release the audio version of that as well to our $2 and up uh, tier listeners. Um, so you get a lot of bonus stuff in addition to all the main content, which is free for everyone. So thank you so much. We are overwhelmed by your generosity. It keeps us going and, um, we are extremely grateful.
Okay, now, uh, like Tamler said, we're going to discuss the probably the most famous work of Marshall McLuhan, um, the opening chapter of his 1964 book, Understanding Media, in which he lays out his, like the now very oft-repeated aphorism, the medium is the message. It's the title of the chapter. But also, we're tossing in this Playboy interview, because honestly, <laughs> I needed, I needed uh, the Playboy interview. And I think if you read the chapter on its own, it might be a, a bit confusing. Um, <laughs> baffling. <laughs> a bit baffling. Uh, just a couple things about Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he died in 1980, but he was a Canadian professor of English at the University of Toronto. He spent most of his career there. And he was pretty influential as an academic. I think the whole field of media studies owes a debt to, to his influence. But he was also like as about as famous as an academic can get in popular culture. So yeah. like during the later part of his career, he was just all over everything. He was name checked on Laugh-In, which I know is the the height of uh, popular culture. <laughs> All our younger <laughs> listeners would be very yeah. impressed to hear that. But laugh, laugh, not laughing. <laughs> he was in Annie Hall, which I think oh, we, yeah. we, we even named an episode after that particular cameo. Um, uh, did we? Like I have Marshall McLuhan right It here. was like, uh, if only like, life were like this. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, Influence of television. Yeah, now, Marshall McLuhan deals with it in terms of it being a, a high... A high intensity, you understand, a hot medium. What I would give for a large sock as with horse manure in it. Which is what do you do when you get stuck or on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute, why can't just I give my maddening. opinion? This is a free country. He, he can give you. You have yeah. to give it so loud. I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really, really. I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah. Just let me, let me, let me, come over here, a second. Oh, tell I heard, him. I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong? How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. He was also like a futurist. So he, he just wrote a lot of, about um, what he thought the future would hold. You can find a whole bunch of that uh, throughout his writings and his interviews. He was a consultant to major corporations and he had speaking gigs and he was like working in advertising. So, uh, but yeah, so he was just like kind of a big deal um, just right before at least my time. So, and mine. Yeah, and maybe yours. Uh, <laughs> so, back, so let's get to the chapter and the argument that he's making. Uh, I, I'll do my best to summarize, but again, it's his his writing style is a, a tad bit convoluted. I think that his main point, I think, uh, is that we, and by we here, he means our entire species, have paid very little attention to the transformative nature of media. And not when he says media, he doesn't mean the content of media, but of the specific media itself. And it's the media that I think he believes, the vessel for the content that has the power to transform our modes of being, our perceptions, our social structure, the structure of society as a whole, uh, to quote from him, the medium shapes and controls the scale and form of human association and action. And for McLuhan, there have been like a few times in human history that society has been radically changed by the emergence of new media technologies. So he points to the first being the phonetic alphabet, uh, which he thought shaped the way that we think and reason, sort of like reasoning in a linear fashion, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And it turns us from a, uh, 
people that use all of their senses to one that is focused primarily on the visual. On the visual. And that yeah. that sort of got like multiplied like crazy with the advent of print media. So right. taking the phonetic alphabet and basically putting it in the hands of everyone. He thinks that the advent of print media, he really thinks led to industrialization, mechanization, uh, which both rely ultimately on a linear form of thinking. He, it also led to homogenization of culture and was a force behind, he thinks, a number of other things, including nationalism, which relies on a shared identity that you can only have when you have that kind of homogeneity that's shared through print media. And now with electronic media. So for him, electronic media was uh, the telegraph, radio, and TV. And he was, I think, focused on TV especially. Um, and I think he... He, I, I want to get to what exactly was about electronic media, but for now, I'll just say that one of the things he thought was that electronic media allowed for instantaneous communication, for nonlinearity, um, and, and uh, for non-literary forms of art. And he, he thought that they were at the, that we as a people were at the cusp of a real, real big change uh, on culture and society as a whole. Um, and he just thought, that we ought to very intentionally try to study the form of media because it was so easy to miss its effects. We just don't notice it because we're bathed in it and we're, sur- we're surrounded by the form of the media. It's part of our environment. So it's like, it's like water for fish. And he thought, especially that the rapid pace of change in modern media, electronic media, was an extra reason to focus on it. But he believed that most people were in complete darkness about it. They focused so much on the content that they were losing sight of what the media itself, the medium itself was doing to change things. Right. Except for artists. I think he thought that artists could tap into the change that was occurring in a in a better way than like the rational academics. Like, I think he thought that they had a pulse on it because like when he talks about cubism as being like a, like he thought cubism sort of signaled the entry of the electronic era, but you know, it wasn't in an electronic medium, but what he thought that they were showing was this instantaneous nature of electronic communication that they were showing now all perspectives at the same time. So I think that's right. And it's very characteristic of like kind of mid mid 20th century art Artists are the ones maybe that are the most conscious of the medium they're working within and most willing to play with that, stretch it, and just that, Give if that's essential to an artist, that means that they're going to be conscious of the environment and the context of what they're doing more than a normal consumer or even a normal person working within media. Yeah, so I, I, actually, let me ask you, what are you thinking? think of this because I could see you having one part of you pulled to the kind of mouth dropping open holy shit like that you had for some of the Lakoff metaphor stuff and on the other hand I could see you having a more dismissive somewhat snobby attitude like you have towards young <laughs> so like which which is it with Marshall McLuhan so uh, you're t- you know me too well um it, I think that there is, like I'll say at the outset, I think that there is something just deeply tr- interesting and probably true about this analysis. And I think that like what excited me, you know, when we were talking about this, I think you had brought this up before, but in the context of this episode, I brought up like, why don't we do the medium is the message? And I was always fascinated by that, you know, the aphorism, the medium is the message. So I wanted to know what exactly, what the fuck is he saying? Because it never quite made sense to me. And after reading the chapter... I was just like 
it angers me, Tamler, when people write this way. Like, it's so full of, like, literary and historical allusions. And, like, I'm not the snob here. Like, he's the snob for writing in this way and making it almost intentionally inaccessible. Like, almost like hiding what I think is a real nugget of a good idea, like a real good idea in there. But with, like, a real convoluted um, post, like, worst of postmodern humanities kind of writing. Um it has that kind of continental style yeah. of constantly quoting people when it's not clear why or what relevance it has to what you're saying. <laughs> right. You know? It was almost stream of consciousness. Like I was like, wait, here's another idea that starts this paragraph, but I'm not quite sure what it had to do with what he just finished saying. Like it might be a great idea. It might be cool. But like I'm not I wasn't sure how it all connected. But then other times like the illusions are good, like like the passage to India when he's talking about oral cultures versus the visual, rational European cultures and how that has influenced like our understanding of rational, like the concept of rationality, right? So he says, uh, rational, of course, has for the West long meant uniform and continuous and sequential. In other words, we have confused reason with literacy and rationalism with a single technology at this time, print. Thus, in the electric age, man seems to the conventional West to become irrational because the electric age is this next stage yeah yeah but that was helpful actually yeah right yeah no totally a absolutely it's it's kind of funny so reading this reading the playboy interview and reading like just here and there other bits and pieces uh, or like listening to some of his interviews i actually think the guy was really insightful and so, and that's saying a lot because a lot of the things that he like would say seem batshit. So like, despite all that, despite like uh, doing it in a way that might be the perfect way, as you predicted, to turn me off. Despite all that, I think that there is something that's super worth talking about. Um, and and more now than ever. Like that's totally that is it is true. One of the things that he was saying about the rapid pace of change in electronic media is. It's, it seems almost laughable for him to think that it was going rapidly in the 60s and 70s when you mm -hmm. compare that to how it's going now. You know. In the last 20, 25 years. Yeah. Or, yeah, the last 10, 10 years. years even, yeah. yeah. Like, look at every day we're getting, like, a new chat GPT-4, and, and uh, it's different than it was last week. Yeah, that's right. Um, what did so you think? I, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure out how best to present this. And maybe it is by distinguishing what he's saying here with some very related ideas like the form of a of a work of art influences the content or it's mm -hmm. inseparable from the content or like i think this about plato's dialogues like the fact that there are dialogues right. is as important as whatever the people are saying in the dialogues the fact that that's how he he's writing and i think this is true of of even marshall McLuhan himself is that his style of writing uh for better or for worse has as much to do with how we talk about him and how we think about his ideas as the actual words in them themselves you know yeah. Um, so I think there's that aspect of it, which is just the form of something and the content. We think we can separate them and we have this long standing 
disposition to focus only on the content and not uh, very much on the forum. Like nobody pays attention to the fact that Plato wrote dialogues. They don't think about that when they're talking about the arguments that you find in Plato. So in one sense, it's just a matter of, uh, and I think that I, I agree with this 100%, shifting our emphasis a little bit, not just taking the, the form of it or the style of it for granted, but um, incorporating that into our analysis of the work as a whole. That's one aspect of McLuhan that you can get, but the but it goes deeper than that. Uh, like he will he talks about the way these things are affecting our central nervous system. Yeah. You know, like so, so say, yeah. He thinks that there is like a deep change. Like a very So when deep we're change. watching TV, it's like these things go into the deepest parts of our senses. So this is what he says. He says, all media from the phonetic alphabet to the computer are extensions of man that cause deep and lasting changes in him and transform his environment. Such an extension is an intensification, an amplification of an organ, sense, or function. And whenever it takes place, the central nervous system appears to institute a self-protected numbing of the affected area, insulating and anesthetizing it from conscious awareness of what is happening to it. And then this is what he thinks is the, the real problem. He says, it's a, I call this, this form of self-hypnosis, narcissus narcosis, yeah. a syndrome whereby man remains as unaware of the psychic and social effects of his new technology as a fish of the water it swims in, like you said. Yeah. yeah. It's very um, psychoanalytic. I mean, like explicitly, obviously, here, he's, he's, it's a nod to Freud. Um, but also he quotes Jung at the end of his, his chapter. Yeah. Um, I, which discredits him. <laughs> which is gonna, uh, it, the idea that the media is the message taken to the extreme is almost self-refuting because we're, the whole reason we're talking about this is because of the content of <laughs> yeah. this interview and the work. The fact that it's an interview or... I actually saw a TV, uh, just like some black and white, interview program where a woman in the audience there was a Q&A and a woman in the audience actually asked almost exactly what you said she said if it's true that the media is the message then why are we here listening to you and why am I asking you this question <laughs> and, yeah I think know. I might have seen this is that where he says like I'm not saying it's yeah it's meaningless but it's incidental yes that's to right all the other like, things he, that are happening yeah he liked to make that strong sort of claim but but at various points he's like obviously like you know <laughs> what Hitler said mattered it's like, I think Nietzsche, I was telling you maybe off air that I, this reminded me of Nietzsche in some ways where he would intentionally sort of exaggerate his point and he was somewhat self-conscious about it. He would talk about this when he was talking about the aphoristic style in general. Um, but it was a way of goading us, inspiring us, shaking us out of our slumber. And when you're McLuhan and you think, as he clearly does, that we are in this kind of exactly. dogmatic slumber, we're just like hypnotized to only talk about things in turn in these very limited parameters of the content uh, without examining just what the form in general is doing to us. I think that's... Uh, he had reason to shout it. Yeah, I think that's totally right. He had reason to shout it. And like, I think he was right to, to do so. Like, I, you know, I actually it doesn't, it, don't, it really actually doesn't bother me that much that he had these crazy ideas about like, you know, turn, TV turning people into tribal, tribalistic. I mean... Is he wrong about that? Well, he's not wrong that maybe we might become more tribalistic, but I don't know that TV is the cause, right? I, I mean, 
Well, think about like right wing television and Rush Limbaugh and <clears throat> talk, um, just what the, the shape of, yeah, maybe it's more evident with talk radio and now with the internet than yeah. with TV, but certainly Fox News has played a big role. I'm sure like MSNBC and CNN has, has turned a lot of people into brain dead neoliberal <laughs> right. uh, zombies too. Like, and just the fact that you have to present ideas in a way now that will appeal to a TV audience and that will also get advertising money. That also has a has a big effect and it has to be. So all of a sudden we're getting our news in very small chunks. And, you know, then, of course, Twitter comes along and even smaller chunks and that's and you, and you think about the way you are when you're on Twitter if that's uh, not affecting s- central nervous system then <laughs> you know like I don't know what is like you get all riled up just because it's Twitter yeah. you know uh, like podcasts have a more relaxing effect on you whereas like these other kinds of media you get more antsy and anxious and pissed off and there's definitely a big truth to this, even if he wasn't always accurate on exactly what would happen. Yeah. And I'm not sure he was right about the why, you know, his view was really that TV specifically uh, was, was a different medium from even movies, but definitely from print in that he he thought of it as a, a cool medium. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about this hot. And yeah. Cool right. So the media. distinction that he, a big distinction that he made is actually in chapter two of his book uh, is between uh, hot and cool media. And there he's just referring to really the degree of participation that the medium requires of you. Like how, like print is offering you up a completed idea in this very neat package and for McLuhan, that meant that you didn't have to take m- much like act. You didn't have to take active steps to finish the thought uh, th- that was coming at you from print. It was a high fidelity um, way of communicating, whereas television w- and comics, for instance, were more low fidelity in that your brain had to complete the images on its own. Your your brain was doing t- being more of an active participant in in taking in the media. This is a very hard thing to understand and maybe counterintuitive because I would have maybe thought exactly the opposite, (laughs) you know, that TV is this kind of numbing thing that you are not participating in and that reading actually requires some imagination. And, but I think to try to do it justice to try to to steal man, are you trying to to steal me? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, the way reading works, it's like all in order it's it's just we're only using our eyes on it and it is leading us to a conclusion in a very sequential way whereas i think he thinks television is bombarding our all of our senses in all these different ways which just challenges us at a deeper level because our areas of attention are more distributed we now have to figure out a way of organizing it in a way that makes sense, whether whereas with uh, you know reading, it's just given to us, and we have a very narrow focus of attention, um, yeah. and that's all we need. Yeah, I think, something like that. I think that's that's doing it justice. And by the way, I think this is why he loved Finnegan's Wake 
Um, because Finnegan's Wake is pushing the boundaries of the print media into probably a mode of thinking that we yeah. would never get from print media. Exactly. And that's the kind of art I think that he liked, right? The, the kind yeah. of art that is just stretching the uh, form. Because people are, are in this narcoleptic stupor, they don't even understand that there is something to be stretched. And that's also a way of shocking us. This way of describing TV, you know, it's, it is also counterintuitive that he's focuses so much on, on reading and print media as being visual, where TV seems so visual. It seems like, wait, if the, if the claim was that it's, it's taking you out of you know, he almost has a noble savage view of early man where they were in tune with all five of their senses. And for him, the oral tradition and the aural tradition, like A-U-R-A-L, that, that was um, a tradition of communication that he thinks involved all of your senses in a way that reading took away. And I think he thinks that TV is a way back to that tradition. Yeah, and, which is yeah strange, and, but right. yes, I and, think you're right. And he has a nostalgia for oral yeah. uh, pre-literate cultures and what that did and like, the richness of your experience that you would have. But then to think that TV is our way back to that. It's very weird. Yeah, it's very weird. And I think that, that if, he, if he were around today, he would be saying, you know, like, well, I don't know what he'd be saying about the internet, to be honest. I'm not quite sure. The internet is such a mixed media. You know, he uses the light bulb as an early analogy where he's trying to say, think about the light bulb. It's dumb to think about the light bulb lighting a baseball game or lighting an operating table because, of course, it has those changes. But he says those activities are like the content of media. What we need to think about is just the way having light changed changed our being. And it's true. Like having an electric light available at any time of the night changed a whole lot about the way that we live. And I think he thinks that TV ought to be understood in this way. And maybe the internet and it's all it's varied for, you know, you get everything on the internet. You get everything that you would get on, t on, on TV. You get everything that you would get in film. You get everything that you would get in print media and then a whole bunch more. Um, but you get it in a different way than you get it if you're in a movie theater or yeah. you're in. So I think that's also part of it, too. It's it's not just that you get all these things, but it the environment that you are getting it has been changed, which also will change you and will change the way you understand whatever it is. And you and I were talking actually about, about the feeling a bit sorry for that cohort of kids who had to spend a couple of their high school years where yeah. their entire, you know, their entire life was online. They were forced to be on Zoom for school and not going out and interacting with people. And, and so in some ways, almost like an experimental group of people who, who have to be getting all of their media from from uh, the right. internet. Yeah, it's been a real problem yeah. for a lot of people. And I mean, look, it's definitely changed people. Some people say, oh, I liked that better. I felt more comfortable. But there's no denying that it's had this effect. And again, like that was so extreme that I think people actually 
noticed and thought about it. Yeah. But with a lot of things, you don't. Like when right. YouTube comes around, you don't think, oh my God, what does it mean that we can now see clips of things in a way that we've never been able to, to do before? We just start thinking, oh, this is a good YouTube clip. This is a good one. Oh, that yeah. one's a little dangerous. Okay. You yeah. Know, that's going to, this, and that I think is like such, that's a great example. Like it changes the way people understand sports and fandom. Yeah. Like obviously politics in all these different ways. That's the thing we should be thinking about, not the content of any particular YouTube video. Thing. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right too. I'm glad you brought up YouTube because it reminded it reminded me uh, of a couple of things. One, the algorithmic nature tying into our yeah. our uh, opening segment, the algorithmic nature of YouTube watching and TikTok and Instagram now is it really is a different mode of interacting. And I'm curious what McLuhan would think about this. In some ways, it is the most passive kind of experience where you are not even, you're not even channel surfing, which is, is a phrase that McLuhan helped coin. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. He coined a lot coined of phrases. A lot, global, like the, the global, global village. village. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. uh, uh, apparently, Andy Warhol said that the 15 minutes of fame quote was directly from a conversation he had with McLuhan. Um, <laughs> that nature of watching where I'm I'm letting the algorithm determine what I watch or what's at least suggested for me to watch. But in many cases, if you just leave the autoplay on, which I know a lot of younger people do, they just let it go. And uh, that has to be a different mode. So that led me to another question, which I, as far as I know, he doesn't. He didn't talk about in this or in the interview, but what is media? What is a medium? So in some ways he's talking about any technology that conveys information, but is, yeah. uh, would algorithmic watching be a new medium for him? Is that not? Count? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I actually have no idea how he tried to define. He, it, they seem like... It seems like it's a category that's bigger than just the difference between TikTok and YouTube um, or something like that. Like, like streaming maybe feels like it's a new mode of... of yeah, I would you know. say maybe stream. That would be... I doubt yeah. he would have some firm opinion, you know, right. like... Uh, yeah. But but it's a good question because I also, just in thinking about how to talk about this, do you talk about the difference between like blogs and Twitter or something right. like that? Or is that all already kind of focusing on the content yeah. rather than the, the, no, exactly. the uh, well, media itself? Totally. And in some ways, what he's talking about is, is just technology um, changing. I, I think he was focused yeah. on a specific kind of change brought about by a specific kind of technology. But, you know, he was super interested in just how mechanization and, and, and industry affected are, are being, and those aren't, the assembly line at Ford isn't media, <laughs> um, but it is a way that, that society was changed. But I think he thinks it all might come down to media technologies. Yeah, or at least that that's the, the parts that we are maybe least likely to examine yeah, critically. That, um, th that's right. I think like it's also such a good whether, you know, whatever he meant by it, it's such an interesting way to think about how some of these things, whether it's at the biggest level of social media or the smallest level of a particular like Reddit, 
versus a different kind of social media. Just what that does to you. Like one of the things I was thinking about, uh, a form of media that I'm a big fan of, podcasts, right? I often think that's the most benign, such a good success story for the internet and online culture. The fact that all of a sudden we have these really smart people who in fun and accessible ways um, can make you feel like you're their friend and you'll learn about something that you care about. And if now you see a movie and you read a book, uh, you can look forward to somebody talking about yeah. that. Um, you know, if, if like the Celtics lose to the Bucks in June, I'm going to have like 10 uh, podcasts that I can listen to, like <laughs> bitching about it, just in the same way I'm bitching about June, it. June, you know? you're, you're very optimistic. <laughs> well, I'm assuming there'll be one, two seeds. Maybe it wouldn't be June. Maybe it'll be late May. In any case. Uh, but then if I think of myself in 2003, I could like get dressed without feeling like I need to listen to a podcast. Absolutely. I could brush my teeth without thinking. I could like go to the grocery store without now I feel like my body like tenses up if I don't have like a good podcast to listen to while I'm doing them. that must have pretty profound effects on my whole psyche and my whole like consciousness well, the fact that now I expect to be kept company at all times by something you well know? and we I think we've talked about this on on our podcast just having time on a walk to think without mm-hmm. without having anything being pumped into your ears it's uh man it is it's weirdly anxiety inducing to like go out and be like well i don't have any podcasts to listen to like they're all i'm all caught up on my feet or something like that you know or or my airpods are dead which you know another technology that has really changed it it's the combination of podcasts and airpods that makes it like no matter where you go in the house you don't even have to have your phone with you you could be naked coming out of the shower and i put my airpods in (laughs) yeah (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All these things, uh, AirPods are a great example, something you wouldn't think about. Oh, it's just better. It's so much better than... And, and it means that you, like, your clothes can be different too because you mm-hmm. don't have... To, uh, all of it is interconnected. Like here, Here's an extreme claim, but I was thinking about it. You know how we always talk about Gen Z and their levels of eight-tier levels of irony that for the first yeah. time we feel like we don't can't connect with or understand? What was it that led them to have this kind of perspective? And things like TikTok, maybe there's just something about that media that lends itself to um, this kind of irony, this detached meta, meta, meta perspective. I like, I would buy that. I yeah, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this and the particular kind of humor that emerged, I think, in the 2000s. And one of the reasons I've been thinking about it is because uh, I've been watching a lot of content from this comedian, um, uh, Tim Heidecker, who who is part yeah, of a yeah, who is part of a comedy duo who had like a couple of shows on on um, the Cartoon Network, and. The way that they did their skits or sketches or whatever relied a whole lot on the ability to edit video in a really weird way. And mm-hmm. so they had this like surreal, a bunch of very surreal yeah. skits. And yeah. if you can if you can represent meta visually, they would do that, like with just a bunch of heads popping out of one head, for instance, or something. Just very weird, odd stuff. That just couldn't have happened without 
uh, the tools to edit video easily. Yeah, digital video. Yeah, digital video. Digital editing. And yeah. and I think that the that this is at least one big source of that brand of humor, that absurdist. It, it's very weird that a younger child might have more absurdist sensibilities yeah. than like a wizened old person like us. <laughs> yeah, or like a 34-year-old or something yeah. like that, which should be your peak like recognition of absurdity, right. but it's not. Now it's like a 15-year-old. <laughs> and they're making the content, you know. Now these guys, Tim and Eric, are Gen Xers, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I like that's a, like this is exactly I think what Marshall McLuhan would want you to do. He would want right. you to look at like okay, so this is, is digital editing, but then also like why does that digital that digital edi- editing has this effect on people that makes them now uh, have a much more absurdist worldview? I, I can't. I, yeah, I can't put it into words, well, dude. But I swear that this particular way of being funny on the internet. That, that I think has a lot of Tim and Eric influence, but surely others. For some reason, the emotion that instills in me is a bit fatalistic. It's like right. a nothing matters kind of humor. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, right. I, I can't explain it well, but it really is like, oh man, it's like the world's burning. Let's make like these ridiculous edits to this like... <laughs> I don't and know. in a different way than like a Coen Brothers movie would different. do it. Coen Brothers is like it might as it, yeah. Coen Brothers is is uh, much more structured and fine tuned to give you specific kinds of emotions. I think you know they're yeah. craftsmen. They're, yeah. This is this is like they threw they throw it together in thirty minutes and it's despair. I mean, I, I like it, but it's despair. It's an expression of like someone falling into an abyss, <laughs> yeah. but also kind of laughing about it. Right. Um, yeah. Other wet things that I think have profoundly shaped us in ways that we don't understand, even though we're like, like email, right? Yeah. Like email and text mm-hmm. um, is something that has just changed the way we interact socially, the way we uh, approach our jobs. And, and, and email is a good example now of the fact that something is an email is m- more salient than whatever's in the email <laughs> compared to uh, other things. You know what I mean? And, and texts too have its own forms of like you get a text and it's, and, it's, and it's also different. But I guess the biggest obvious way in which it's changed us is how often we communicate with each other yeah. and in what way we communicate with each other and how easy it is now to schedule a time to meet but then also at the same time, like it gives you kind of a reason where you don't have to meet because <laughs> you can, uh, and like all these things must be shaping us socially, intellectually, cognitively in all sorts of different ways that it's when you're swimming in it, it's very hard to like figure out exactly how. And we do take it for granted. Yeah. Like, um, we don't think about the ways that that's completely changing our, our way of interacting with the world. Yeah, I mean, here's one real simple uh, change that it's created, and that is the guilt I feel for not talking to my family uh, as much mm-hmm. as maybe I should. Where, you know, when I was growing up, my father, our, all of our family was in Chile, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and collect, and uh, sorry, uh, long distance calls were expensive. So we would yeah. once a month gather around the phone and talk to the family. 
my father now is 88 years old and his brother, I think, just turned 90 or 91. And they talk every day on FaceTime. And it's, it's you know, uh, McLuhan over and over again, in, especially in the Playboy interview, says that he's not here to make value judgments about things. Like he, he just wants to point out that the change is happening. He prefers not to say whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Uh, he does give an opinion at the end of that interview, which is interesting. But here's one where I can say that has connected my father in a way to his family that I think probably has made him live longer, to be honest. Like that yeah. is a social connection that we could never have had before. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, how many friends are you still in touch with that in a million years you wouldn't be in touch with? <laughs> right. And that's going to make you think about your past, your childhood in a different way. And, and it has both positive and negative effects. But like I said, when it comes to something like that, the ability to FaceTime, the, the fact that when I was in college, I had to go to a, a payphone and yeah. I had to like put a collect call in to <laughs> my parents who had to be there and we had to somehow communicate that this would be the time that I called probably right. um, like that was uh, whereas with like Eliza and and uh, like both text and phone we, we're interacting constantly is Eliza is she good at texting you back yeah oh for the most part yeah I think she feels that guilt that you feel if you like uh, uh, yeah. text someone <laughs> I, t- um, I told my daughter explicitly my daughter's pretty bad at like texting back she, I, and I was uh, I'm pretty bad uh, with a lot of that. Uh, I told her explicitly, don't ever, I don't ever want you feeling guilty because you haven't replied to me. Like it was yeah. just pr- priority number one. I was like, I don't want her emotions to be like the ones Affected. that I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said to my daughter, just like, if you don't get back to me like two hours after uh, I text you, I'm going to start cutting myself. <laughs> <laughs> you have a timer. <laughs> yeah, timer. Clean razor blades close by. <laughs> uh, no, but it's like, you know, it makes it a very different thing. And I'm sure it makes it different for her, too. Like, you, ha- I probably had to make my own way in the world and figure this shit out on my own in a way that she doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, that's going to shape the way she matures as a human being. Um, again, I think for better and for worse, but like, there's no way that these things don't have a profound impact on us yeah. uh, at every level. And people talk about, again, the content, like when they complain about helicopter parents or whatever, you know, but, um, yeah. without talking about the things that have actually made that way more, it's not even that it's easier to do it. It's that, it's that once you have these technologies that allow you to be in constant communication with your child, then are just like our natural emotional system is going to be like, why wouldn't I reach out to them if I can? Yeah. And and that creates a whole unexpected set of consequences, probably. The helicopter parent example is really interesting because, yeah, it was you couldn't be a helicopter. Parent. <laughs> yeah, you're like write, writing letters. Like, <laughs> you know, like I think my mom probably tried her best, especially academically. Like she would try, you know, she was really committed to me doing well academically but like there was a limit to what she could do <laughs> right. because she wasn't and and if i was at uh you know my dad's house because they were divorced like yeah she could there was nothing she could do and like that's uh that's such a great example because it's transformed the way kids have grown up kids yeah. grow up now you know yeah. especially at certain like uh ses levels right yeah. like now kids are constantly just aware of their parents expectations and their 
your parents, uh, and on, not just in the long term, but like uh, in the, the their uh, smallest daily decisions, it's like it's easy to say like what's wrong with these parents or what's wrong with these kids, and I've said that before. And the truth is, there's nothing wrong with them. It, that's th- just the natural result of having yeah. this ability to communicate. Um, it turns it turns normal parenting into something just different because now you you can text your kid. And I think McLuhan, like you said, for the most part, he he says, I want to be value-free about this. Yeah. I think he has a clear nostalgia for really primitive, enchanted yeah. uh, times where uh, I think he thinks life was richer. And he might be right about that. But then also he has a kind of futuristic, we're going to break down these boundaries and return, almost return to a kind of state where all of our senses, not just sight, are in being... Right. Right, and in, yeah. in this interview, he he speaks at length about uh, the quote unquote television generation, right? The, the generation of kids brought up on TV. And he seemed to really think that television was going to transform them such that regular schooling would no longer be an option for them, that this was going to be a completely different generation. So he thought that the change that was brought about by media like TV that would be more integrative of the senses would lead to a different kind of connection between human beings and to this, again, this tribalism. Like he believed that we would become uh, more like our tribal ancestors. He says this pattern of decentralized mini states will be repeated in the United States, although I realize that most Americans still find the thought of the Union's dissolution inconceivable, the U.S., which was the first nation in history to begin its national existence as a centralized and literate political entity, will now play the historical film backward, reeling into a multiplicity of decentralized Negro states, Indian states, regional states, linguistic and ethnic states, etc. Decentralism is today the burning issue in the 50 states from the school crisis in New York City to the demands of the retribalized young that the oppressive multiversities be reduced to a human scale and the mass state be debureaucratized. The tribes and the bureaucracy are antithetical means of social organization and can never coexist peacefully. One must destroy and supplant the other or neither will survive. Uh, I don't know who to root for between the <laughs> tribes and the bureaucracy. Probably the tribes. <laughs> Maybe the tribes. Uh, 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 yeah, he, it seems like an, such an extreme. Again, I can't tell how sincere he's being to to think that just the existence of TV as as a as a medium is going to to cause the dissolution of the union. But um, at the same time, like there are talks like of, uh, you know, not like by members of Congress that we sh- like certain part the red states should secede from the union. And there's this yeah. rural urban divide and there's this. And, and but and I don't it's think sh- it's because of the sensory differences that t- television caused, like uniting the five senses. No, that's I, I, I guess that's not right. But I, I but I think there's other aspects of like media culture that. Or, or the forms of media where people get their, uh, where people are politically informed that yeah. might account for it. Yeah, like the internet. The fact that earlier. we went to television as a way of communicating political ideas, whereas before you had to go to like, you had to read about it or you had to go and actually see the people talking, you know. Now maybe that makes tribalism a lot easier to kind of cement and harden and uh, get people to dig in their heels about and maybe less able to see nuance. 
Yeah, and I think the internet and maybe and social media and and al- maybe algorithmic news feeds do play a big role in that. Um, right, and yeah. you know, so maybe like the details of how television and similar forms of media would do this are wrong, but I might be right that that it has done what he said it was going to do or it's on its way to doing that so listen to this he says the computer can be used to direct a network of global thermostats to pattern life in ways that will optimize human awareness uh so he's he's talking about like the power of computers to to uh, benefit society and he says there's nothing at all difficult about putting computers in the position where they will be able to conduct carefully orchestrated programming of the sensory life of whole populations i know it sounds rather science fictional but if you understood cybernetics you'd realize we could do it today he's very condescending Um, the computer could program the media to determine the given messages the messages that people should hear in terms of their overall needs creating a total media experience absorbed and patterned by all the senses now he's talking about like the ability of computational stuff to provide this like wonderful enriched sensory stuff like he wants to be able to program the world to return back to this this uh, state of of all five senses being in balance but what he's describing is actually what's happened, except for not in the good way. Like computers have been programmed to provide different sensory experiences to different people and shape opinions and, and shape, shape opinion. beha- and shape behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly what's happened. Did you? I, I I didn't get in that quote that he thought this was a really positive thing. Well, he's talking. Yeah, the context I think is where he's saying that. Uh, uh, he says automation and cybernation can play an essential role in smoothing the transition to the new society. And he is tr- tr- talking about the power of computers to create uh, a good sensory life of, sorry, he says we could prog- program five hours less of TV in Italy to promote the reading of newspapers during an election or an additional 25 hours of TV in Venezuela to cool down, uh, to cool down the tribal temperature raised by the radio per- the preceding month. So he's, he's saying, cause the guy was asking, um, won't this tribalism cause all kinds of social strife? And he say, yeah. yeah, but with cybernetics or whatever, we can actually regulate we can, this. We can control it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that always works. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's funny because at other times he is very sneering about this kind of view that as long as we use this for good, it will be fine. And that all that matters is yeah. the intentions of the per- person that's using it. Like he essentially makes fun of the idea, uh, guns don't kill people. Uh, <laughs> exactly. People c- kill people. He's like, the media is the thing and it won't matter whether the people in charge have like want to wield it for the forces of good or for the forces of evil. Uh, right. So it's yeah, funny here that it's, he says that. I know it is. It seems like what he's saying is that if we can get the right balance of the kinds of media through some sort of centralized operation, you know, where, where we give, okay, this group needs some cool media right now. This group needs some hot media and then you can ease the transition. But yeah, you're right. I don't think he had much of a problem contradicting himself. Probably. (laughs) Right. Uh, And why would he? Uh, Can can we talk about this idea of the, you know, oral culture and this idea of acoustic space? So I think this stuff, I don't know, I was interested to see what you thought of this part, um, but this is on like page six of the PDF of the interview, 
um, where he's talking about oral cultures, how they lived in a different acoustic space than literate man did. And the interviewer says, what do you mean by that? And he says, I mean space that has no center, no margin, unlike strictly visual space, which is an extension and an intensification of the eye. Acoustic space is organic and integral and perceived through the simultaneous interplay of all the senses, whereas rational or pictorial space, rational in quotes, is uniform, sequential, and continuous and creates a closed world with none of the rich resonance of the tribal echo land. Our own Western time-space concepts, this is a a pretty deep point here, at least a radical point. Our own Western time-space concepts derive from the environment created by the discovery of phonetic writing, as does our entire concept of Western civilization. The man of the tribal world led a complex kaleidoscopic life precisely because the ear, unlike the eye, cannot be focused and is synesthetic rather than analytic and linear. And he goes on on this. But I'm wondering what you think about this idea. Um, You know, it almost has a Kantian or, you know, that kind of structuralist way of understanding uh, even basic concepts like time and space. Um, Yeah, I I highlighted some of this. Honestly, as I was reading it, I was like, well... Is that true? Is there an empirical claim in there about what, what, um, you know, like auditory life is like, could we go to preliterate cultures now and, and actually see that, that they have some sort of a different sensory experience? I, I don't think it's crazy that the written word has completely changed the way that we, that we think. I think that part is not crazy, but I am not quite sure what, this is what gets me. He, he always says that he's not making value judgments. It really does seem like he thinks that this previous era was better in some way, that there was this balance of sensory experience that was better. And I don't, I don't quite get it. Yeah. I mean, I buy that we're different now. You know, one of the things about, just take memory, right? In oral cultures, people's memory is crazy good because they have to, memorize everything and and that's a big difference and i buy that when you have when you're just living as a hunter-gatherer you have to be more in tune with your environment at all times um you know we're sitting here staring at pieces of electronic equipment for like 12 hours a day um and that certainly has to do something to our psychology i'm just not quite sure about the like well this is our where concepts of space time come in Yeah. Uh, I was telling you before that this reminded me of the Ted Chang truth of fact, truth of feeling. And one of the ways that he he's comparing oral cultures and written cultures, uh, that's not focused on time and space as much as it is truth. Like what you mean by truth and how you understand whether something is true or not. Yeah, it's it's awesome. (laughs) And I'm and I bet influenced by some of this like McLuhan philosophy, right? So, and I think that's probably right, that even something as basic as what do we consider true will be changed based on whether we are brought up in this visually focused, literate uh, environment or whether we're brought up in an environment where people just constantly telling stories to each other as ways of conveying information. Um, but there's no, there's nothing written down that you can always consult to well, see. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I actually think, let, let's, uh, there's an extreme claim that he might be making here, which is that, you know, our, that the universe actually 
th- that what we know about whatever Einstein, <laughs> whatever Einstein knows about time and space is only a result of the written word. Um, there's like a, a an extreme version of that claim that I don't think is is true, but it but phenomenologically, our experience of time and space, if that's the claim he's making, then that has to be true. I mean, even just having a calendar in front of you, laying out the year, you know, yeah. week by week, I think has to have a, a, a deep influence on our phenomenology. You know, yeah. we, we never would have been asked what we were doing in, you know, December 7th of this year. Are you free? Like, are you available? Right. To, like, I right, mean, like, I don't fucking know what no you're talking meeting. about. Yeah. Yeah. No, right, right. I guess to press you a little bit on even the more extreme view, the the kind of Einstein's theories of general relativity or something is only a product of, uh, but maybe the way Einstein tackled the problem, approaches the problem, conceptualizes the problem is uh, not just trivially influenced by being in a literate culture because he had to be able to... um, To write numbers down. To write it down, read other people, you know, read (laughs) Newton, read all the people before him. But also just like, yeah, like maybe you under, like the things that you want to try to explain or the things that you want to try to understand are conceptualized in completely different ways if you're in an oral culture rather than a literate culture. Or maybe if we're in this whatever new culture we're about to get into, um, we'll think about these things in such a radically different way that it'll seem like Einstein is answering questions that don't make sense to us or trying to understand the problem in ways that don't make sense to us. Yeah, I, I guess I would, you know, if, if you're asking my deep opinion, I would say that there is a math to this stuff that is that is that transcends whatever humans think about it. But just what I, a literate culture person. Would say. <laughs> that's right. But but, you know, there is something about the the abstraction the abstract level of the math leaves a lot of room for the metaphors that we use, the way that we even talk about, uh, about this stuff. Like there's nothing, I have zero understanding of the math. And so all I know about space time is what's presented to me through the use of like visual metaphors and in a different culture, those metaphors might've been completely different, right? It could, it could have been described in a very different way and still be describing the mathematics. Uh, but, but maybe not. But I also think like, you know, he has this stuff about causation, which I know you're not a fan of, but this idea that the way we think about cause in this human way of like sequence, one thing following another is just the result of the fact that's how we read things. One word follows the the next word. And so it just becomes ingrained in us that uh, causation has this function. And I'm sure that that's, you know, kind of at the basis of a lot of scientific methods, scientific uh, and at the deepest levels is is that notion. Um, See, I, I feel like it's it's been uh, that the literacy has been an aid to discover causation. So I think that he's right to connect the two. But I just I, I guess I think like, well, no, there really are. I mean, look, push comes to shove. Who knows what a cause is? But like there really is something happening or else science wouldn't work. I, I just like I don't think that the Gutenberg invented the fact that that we see like, you know, that we get we know about gravity. Uh, so you're using induction to justify induction. <laughs> okay. I guess you you do you. Uh, 
So <clears throat> the last part of that quote that McLuhan <laughs> uh, says is, Audile, tactile, tribal man partook of the collective unconscious, lived in a magical, <laughs> integral world patterned by myth and ritual, its values divine and unchallenged, whereas literate or vi visual man creates an environment that is strongly fragmented, individualistic, explicit, logical, specialized, specialized and detached. So, I mean, based on what you just said, he... You know, Marshall McLuhan might say just the fact that you're saying, well, science wouldn't work unless like all these laws really accurately described reality is because you're not living in this magical integral world patterned by myth and ritual. Like, so, so you have to think there must be a reason. If, if we can make a rocket ship and it works every time if we follow these laws, then that must mean, uh, you know, we've, we've described uh, the universe correctly, at least in this domain. And like, I, I guess it's very hard to, trans to step outside this debate and see, you know, who's right. Uh, this is part of the un slightly unfalsifiable nature of it but like pretty much anything that you say when you're pushing back <laughs> right. he can he can say as he does sometimes to the interviewer you know classic literate you know <laughs> right. man perspective this is know? the frustration of like reading freud you know sometimes, sometimes where you're just yeah, like, yeah. Right. but that doesn't mean it's wrong right it just means that it's no yeah i have yeah. i have other reasons to think that there is a reality that is described accurately by some of these models um you know that 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 um but but i can't disagree that tribal man governed by myth and ritual could never build a spaceship i, I mean or they would never even that's think not, to build he's, a spaceship. he's not just saying no that. i'm giving him i'm giving him the uh, <laughs> the benefit of the doubt <laughs> because as i was reading this i was thinking to myself is this where the shrooms kicked in like for him where he's talking about magic a magical integral world patterned by myth and ritual its values divine and unchallenged and partaking of the collective unconscious Look, like I, I just don't know where he's getting any of that. Like I, that's it seems just so speculative that not even if it were right would I believe that he got there reliably. But I, I mean, I know you're being snide when you say did the shrooms kick in, but I do get the sense that he thinks that like in these cultures, your daily experience, your daily <clears throat> phenomenology was hallucinogenic in the way that it is when you're taking mushrooms or acid or something because you're taking in so much more of a gestalt of what's going on and you have so much more openness to and, and alertness to your environment as a whole than you normally do when we have kind of blinders on and we're very focused on what our attention is. And so, like, I actually think... You know, he thinks that's something we've lost. It's something we've also gained. You know, as he says to the interviewer and in the Playboy interview, it's like there's progress and then there's also bad things about it. And I'm not that's and my personal view is I don't like a lot of what uh, technology is bringing. But um, but I think he might be right about like that. We can only underestimate um, the impact that something like. Um, the printing, not even the printing press, but just first the alphabet and then the printing press had on us. And and we're a little beyond it, so we can maybe step into a position where we're judging, like, what's the difference between living in an oral culture and living in a, a literate culture? But then we're also enmeshed in this new thing, which is much harder uh, to try to imagine the ways in which it will change us. But if it does change us in a way that I think 
McLuhan is suggesting it will, we can't imagine what that's going to look like probably, you know, uh, unless right. we're... Maybe our kids are in that in, that in between uh, state where their phenomenology is actually drastically different than ours because of the way that, that their environment, their media environment was as they were raised. Like we wouldn't really know. But it could, I, I even mean in the broader sense of like in 80 years, like maybe science looks def- completely different. Uh, when you've had a hundred years of the internet, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, certainly yeah, it's more replicable post- because, you know, people can post their preprints. <laughs> no, exactly. They can pre-register. pre-register. Uh, <laughs> that's Brian Nosek has changed the world. <laughs> He's changed the way people like uh, interact. Just... Yeah. Turns out, turns out causality is just different 80 years from now because of open science foundation. <laughs> I mean, uh, like that kind of happened with uh quantum physics, right? Like with uh, that was not something that was really imaginable two and uh two hundred years before that, three hundred years before that. No, uh, and, but it and is Einstein but, too. But, but that's a that's at a slightly lower level than what I'm talking about. Yeah, I you know I think you and I constitutionally are just different. Where or I think that there there may like I have no problem saying people had a. Um, they were more in touch with their environments. They might, they were probably psychologically closer to each other. Bonds of communities were, were different. Uh, obviously there are parts of psychology, like the oral tradition made you good at a particular kind of storytelling and remembering. I think there are all kinds of really interesting ways in which our psychology is deeply different. I just am not buying the mystical shit. Like, that's just not me. Like, I just think that, that to say that they were in touch with something divine and it was a collective unconscious, it's like, well... Are hunter-gatherers that are not in literary societies, do they have that? You know, I'm also of the opinion that we that there is true progress, that something like quantum theory came about because literacy allowed us to share ideas and information and and yeah. you could do math and and that this these are true discoveries. Um and that we he, were in, He agrees with that though. That they were true discoveries? Well, that that we couldn't have like made these kinds of discoveries and that's progress of a certain kind for sure like you can't deny that they understand just the fact that you can build the rocket ship shows that you understand something about like the world that other people haven't understood okay yeah i see i just didn't know whether you're pushing like the strongest of relativistic claims where where when you're in a world where you believe in that space and time are this thing that they in fact are this thing i mean i'm not as committed to like the scientific realist versus anti-realist debate all I'm saying, and not as a way of shitting on science or saying Fyaraband or whatever was, was right. <laughs> yeah. um, all I'm saying is that information culture, the internet, you give it a hundred years and what science looks like then and in the way they approach certain basic fundamental scientific questions might be totally different. You could still say, and they might still be able to say, oh, we're closer to the truth than they were back in 2023. That's that's an orthogonal question to what I'm saying is that this form of new media that we're bombarded and, and growing up in could just drastically change the way science uh, operates and like understands certain basic questions about uh, the universe. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe it's not. I, I don't. I'm not opposed to that. I, I, you know what we what we consider drastically different 
maybe the devil's in the details there. But, you know, yeah. say, for instance, like say the ability to run large scale simulations based on all the data we've gathered about humanity or about the physical world that's just not available to us. That's a, what I would consider a drastic change. And maybe the methods of science change completely because of of that stuff. I think, though, the stuff we were talking about before, about like even you and I and our our relationship to media in terms of AirPods and podcasts is like a deep phenomenological difference. Like, I, I don't think it's, it seems like it might be surface, like, oh yeah, I listen to more podcasts now than I ever, you know, than I ever listened to audiobooks when I was a kid. But I think there is something real deep. I think, and I think, for instance, that cohort of kids who was in high school, or even just us, like people like us who spent two yeah. years apart from, from, you know, in social isolation, we have like a lot of people, probably not you, had increased anxiety just from like the first parties they went to. And not because of COVID, just because of people, because of like being around people. I, I think that technology, and this is what I love about McLuhan, he's saying, pay attention to this stuff, because if you're just paying attention to like what you were watching on Netflix right. during COVID, that's a complete, that's a complete right. distraction. Like, were you watching Marvel movies or were you watching, you know, right. film noir? No. It's Tiger that- King. That's the problem with these <laughs> games is they're that's watching right. Tiger King. Right. Yeah. It's that we could, it's that what it meant to be indoors for two years is different than what it would have meant to be indoors for two years in the 1918 epidemic. Yeah. And technology has made that really different. Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I'm going on and on, but I think this is this is good stuff. Like I was at this conference, uh, the social psychology conference that I was talking about in the last episode, and I ran into one of my students who just started working with me, and she was like, "It's really weird to see you in person. Like it felt like a different social interaction that we were having. We've been meeting every week for like a year, and being next to each other just felt like." it was a different human being. Right. This is why, like, if you send me an email, that's such a different thing than if you (laughs) send me a text, which is such a different thing than if we talk on the phone or if we see each other in person. Like, those are completely different kinds of experiences, but we do have a tendency to conflate it. Like, you know, I'm sure this podcast would be very different if we recorded it in person and we lived in the same city. And we, all these things have this cumulative effect. On top of that, there is this general kind of alienating and atomizing effect that these kinds of technologies have. They give you this kind of simulation of social interaction that can probably satisfy a surface need that you have and that all that does is make it so that when you actually go out and interact with people like they did in the old tribal days of like the (laughs) 1990s or whatever, then like they don't know how to handle it. And so that's going to shape the way they interact with each other, that there's this baseline uh, social anxiety that has been there always to some extent, but has probably been amplified and yeah. is only going to get further amplified in that direction. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say, what you were saying earlier, that once these technologies are out there, it's like, even if you are concerned about its effect, it's like you can't not do it um, <laughs> because it's out there. It's like texting. It's like, well, like maybe it's not a good thing to be constantly texting your kid. But like, I here's this funny joke or this funny <laughs> link that she would like, and yeah. and it's like, so it's like just its availability makes it hard to turn down, even if you're worried about some of the effects. And one of the things I was thinking, did you do for Bella like that three life three six five or whatever? What is it? It's essentially like a tracker for your kid, oh. so you're 
kid, so you'll always know where your kid is? No, but but she uh, has location turned on for me on her iPhone. So I know, and I told her I was like, "Look, I I will never check unless I'm worried like about something." And uh, and I promise you that turning it on. I mean, she didn't need a lot of convincing because they share location with each other, which I think is fucking batshit. And so I I said, look, I'll text you less if I have this, because, you know, if you stayed out late and I know that you're at a party and and I can just see that you're still there, then I just won't bother you. You know, like I won't be like, hey, are you okay?" (laughs) Yeah. So I had this kind of argument with some of my friends who are doing it with their kids. And I was thinking how can you do this? This is Orwellian. This is like some kind of dystopia that yeah. uh, you're constantly tracking uh, your your kid. Like part of growing up is that you know that you can't be tracked and you can't be found. Um, and all of them gave an answer like, well, yeah, but if you can do it, like what if, <laughs> like, what if uh, she, like I don't know where she is and she's supposed to be somewhere. And plus it's more convenient. Like I'll know if we're supposed to meet and she's t- 10 minutes late or half an hour late like I'll, yeah. I'll know what it's going to be and it's and, and i happen to on this particular issue and v- probably very few others take that kind of troglodyte stand of <laughs> no like that was something that i didn't have when i was a kid i was fine my parents didn't need to know where i was every two seconds and so i'm not gonna do it but there's so many other times and i'm sure i could have gotten pushed in this direction of uh, uh, even on this issue where we just accept it because it's like it's there. And so why would you not do it? You can conceive of times where it would be really helpful, if not like life saving. And so then just the fact that it exists makes you think you can't not do it. You right. know, you can't and, not treat it. Right. And I think even like even sneakier than that, it hijacks your nor- like normal human emotional systems where if your daughter was in the house and you like you could just easily call out to her and say, hi, how was your day? Now you can do that over the phone. Right. And so your impulse is just a good, normal human one to reach out to your daughter. But sh- what we had, what you and I had was that our parents couldn't do that every day to, to us. I'm sure right. they wanted to. I'm sure like that feeling right. of like missing your kid. It's just the harsh reality was that you, yeah, you can't, you just can't. And now that we can, it seems even like, well, why, but why wouldn't you reach out to your daughter? You know? Right. It's like, <laughs> right. And I feel that. And like when it comes to like texting of like all the time and talking yeah. on the phone all the time, like I do all that stuff, even though, you know, I'm sure that has effects um, that are some good, some bad, but undeniably probably profound. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like I do think between COVID and the internet and, the effects on mental health in uh, uh, teenagers now, it's very hard to judge to what extent it's influenced by what, but it's, it does seem like there's a bit of a sea change and like yeah. we're swimming into uncharted territory, you know, like yeah. we haven't even somehow talked about porn and <laughs> that form of media and how that form of media has changed and shaped the desires of people and yeah. especially young no men. that's right like, yeah yeah i believe it or not i hadn't even thought about porn i mean i had thought about porn but not in the I context of this right <laughs> <laughs> I know. it's weird but that's such a probably a good example of this stuff, right yeah you know? just fundamentally alters desires yeah you know i am a firm believer in the privacy in privacy of my daughter like i think that that 
that was a step that like I had to go into really just like, and I made a promise that I would not regularly check where she is because I hate yeah. the thought of that too. Um, I just, it was, it was one of those cost benefits where I'm like, well, if she's really in trouble, then I can yeah. know where she is, you know? It's, but, it's, it's like with like all these cancer treatments, just the fact that you can do them makes it like, okay, well now I have to, because what if I didn't? And worst case scenario, it's, uh, I'm like, you know, if somebody dies that didn't have to yeah. die. It's the counterfactual thinking. Yeah. That's yeah. that kills you. Yeah, no, there's a lot to talk about too, uh, yeah. with the, with the porn thing that you brought up. Um, and, uh, but, but I don't know that we save it for that, so we'll Marshall it for... McLuhan part two, the <laughs> porn episode. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he titled the next book or a later book. The medium is the massage. Yeah. I saw that. It was because of a typo. Um, but then he liked it. <laughs> so he liked kept it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, it hasn't changed like society the way people thought it might, at least so far as virtual porn. This Tune in <laughs> next time where we talk about why has virtual porn not taken off? <laughs> it's a good place to end. <laughs> All right. Um, join us next time for the podcast, Very Bad Wizards. The, the, um, the podcast is the message. The podcast is the message. Just a very bad wizard.